Hey there, welcome to another edition of Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. Now, of course, we have been doing this show from our homes for like, how long has it been? 20 years? Feels like that. Anyway, a long time. And on the subject of our homes and our houses, this week, we are very excited that we're going to be talking to the writer Eula Biss about the book she wrote about buying a house in Chicago. Uh, we're also going to get a visit from poet, writer, Hanif Abdul-Rakib. He actually spent a lot of his time in quarantine meticulously cataloging his personal musical roots from 1968 all the way up to 2005, and it's all laid out in this amazing new blog that he launched. And speaking of music, we're also going to hear some by the very talented, very fun to talk to, Lydia Loveless. So stick around for that. We've got a great edition of Livewire coming your way, and it all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It is going great. I understand that you are going to be getting on an airplane for the first time since the pandemic. Yes, first time in like 18 months. So I need some advice because I know you've been on one. So what's your tips? I have. Well, the I think the emotional journey is you get to the airport and you think, oh, man, I kind of missed this, actually, huh. this hustle and bustle. And then about two minutes later, you think, boy, oh, boy. Is this a drag? <laughs> oh, great. So just be ready, for, be ready for that. The honeymoon period is fairly short. Are people more courteous now that we know that we need to be more hygienic and spaced out or whatever? I do think so. Okay. Yes. And I'm hoping that some of that stuff carries over. Oh, me too. You know, e- even depending on where we're all at kind of from a vaccination standpoint, I hope we all take a moment to wipe everything down with an alcohol-soaked wipe just because, you know— It's more hygienic that way. You can count on me. I'll be bringing my wipes on all of my flights, (laughs) which is my new single. (laughs) Wipes on all my flights. Yeah, I dig it. (laughs) DJ Miscellaneous. Hey, you ready to do this radio show? Yes, let's do it. All right, Molly, are we recording? Hey, Luke, we're rolling. All right, then. Take it away, Elena. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week... Writer Eula Biss, poet and cultural critic Hanif Abdurraqib, and music from Lydia Loveless. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in this week. 
we got a fun show in store for you. As always, we asked the audience a question. We asked folks, what is your personal theme song? And we're going to get people's responses to that question coming up here in just a few minutes. First, though, of course, it's time for the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is, in fact, good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news that you heard all week? Okay, so do you remember that TV show? I don't even know if it's still on Storage Wars. Uh, remember it? Yes, <laughs> I was a I was a frequent viewer. Yeah, you would like watch these people bid on storage units kind of sight unseen and then maybe try mm-hmm. to resell some of the goodies. And I guess there were storage units that the renter was no longer able to pay the rent on the storage units. Right. That's what happens is when somebody, uh, I guess, doesn't make the payment for a certain amount of time, the storage unit place then owns the unit. There's a padlock on it and you can kind of buy it like a, a giant eight foot by 12 foot lottery ticket, I guess. Yeah. It's like, let's make a deal. Uh, yeah, right. Another TV show. Yeah. There's going to be a donkey in one of them. I'm ashamed to admit that like, I didn't really think about what was on the other side of that premise that like, maybe uh-huh. if, if you get your storage unit padlocked, it's because you've fallen on some kind of hard times and it, sure. might, it might not be a great situation. I was just thinking about these treasure hunters who were looking for all these amazing things. And I think that's kind of where the story starts with a high school sophomore in Rhode Island named Shane Jones, who works at a used bookstore and finally made a spare hundred bucks and immediately went to play the storage war game. And Uh he, he got a unit on his very first bid, opened it up. And it didn't really have the same kinds of treasures that I think he had thought about. Like some beautiful painting that somebody had stashed there for some reason. Right, a Rembrandt, you know, like like Mm -hmm, there always is in Rhode Island storage units. Um, Instead, what he found were these mementos and these documents that seemed like they might be important. And so he started Google searching around and pretty quickly uh, found out that the unit belonged to an incarcerated person who could no longer pay to rent the storage unit. And so then he tracked down this man's mother and gave her sort of the most crucial items in the storage unit. And instead of getting addicted to treasure hunting, he got a little bit addicted to that service. So the next time he got enough money, yeah, right? He bid on another unit that had a bunch of uh, family heirlooms in it, and he found out that the locker owner was deceased. So he tracked down their closest relatives and arrived with these uh, really important pieces of family history to give to the next of kin and he's been doing it he's done it again and again and again and his parents are so proud of him and he got written up in a local facebook post so instead of being like kind of looking for this like exciting score he's now looking for these ways to connect people with things that they might be missing oh that is such a great story right your story is about somebody a a young person who's doing something really valuable with their time yeah my story is about a young person who's doing something It's questionable as to how valuable it is. A guy recently in England, Elena, set the Guinness Book of World Records for most M&Ms stacked on top of each other. Oh, okay. How many would you guess? What would your guess be as what the new Guinness World Record of most M&Ms stacked on top of each other is? Like a rock cairn, sort of like that way? Yes. Okay. Basically like that. What do you think the the world record that was recently set for most M&Ms stacked on their side atop each other like that is peanut or plain <laughs> i'm making this i'm trying this plain out. this matters okay this matters <laughs> it's they're plain i mean it can't be more than like 10 right 
Well, your instincts are much better than mine because <laughs> y- y- the, the number is five, by the way. Oh, really? The record is five. <laughs> I would have thought it was like 10,000 or something. Like five seems like such a, I feel like we could set a Guinness record during the recording of this show if we just had a bag of M&Ms. No. Like, I couldn't, I-, I watched this guy on Instagram, by the way, his name is Will Cutbill. Um, and uh, he broke the record that a guy in Italy and a guy in Australia were sharing, the previous record being four. And during the pandemic, he said he was just really bored. He normally eats like chocolate bars, but for whatever reason, he had switched over to M&Ms on this given week. Uh. And he was just sort of like kind of doing a thing a lot of us were doing for a lot of the pandemic, which was just staring into the middle distance, just (laughs) trying to figure out what to do with himself. And so he went online and, and found out that the record for most M&Ms stacked on top of each other was four. And he thought, I can probably beat that. And so it took him a good while, but he finally managed to stack five M&Ms on top of each other. And uh, it's been verified by Guinness. And now he is the world record holder in this category. How long is a while? How long did it, did it take him to figure out how to do it? Is this like a, a pandemic long feat? No, no. I think it took him like a week of, of of setting aside a couple hours each afternoon. <laughs> Still. I mean, you know, like I play like Angry Birds, so who am I to talk? Like at least he's using his hands. I feel like we're missing an opportunity here on Livewire. Like if these are the kind of records that are being accepted by Guinness currently, <laughs> I started looking this up and on the Guinness website, there's also like most ping pong balls caught on your head if you've covered it with shaving cream. That is an actual record, Elena, that exists. And I feel like we could beat some of those records if we put our mind to it. Let's do I mean, we're going to be live again soon. So like these are all things that we could do on stage for a bunch of uh, probably stressed out yeah. ticket holders after they see that that's what they bought a ticket to. But <laughs> Oh, no, it'll be delightful for them. I grew up obsessed with the Guinness Book of World Records as a kid, you know, and I always wanted to kind of know what the most of something was or the tallest or the mm-hmm. heaviest or whatever it would be. And, and now to know that all I have to do is stack six M&Ms on each other and I will be in there with like the world's tallest man and the world's largest pumpkin. I believe in you. That, Elena, that is the best news that I heard all week. All right, let's get our first guest onto the show. He is a poet, essayist, podcast host, and cultural critic from Columbus, Ohio. Uh, He writes about music a bunch, uh, including uh, his really wonderful book, Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest. And he has started curating this uh, really incredible music blog. It's called 68 to 05, uh, which we're going to hear about right now. Hanif Abdurraqib, welcome to Livewire. Y'all, thanks for having me. It's always such a pleasure to be back here with you all. I feel like I'm officially part of the family and to be on the show in a week where you're also having Lydia Loveless, who is another Uh, Columbus, Ohio well, not that I'm a Columbus, Ohio legend, but they, she is a Columbus, Ohio legend. Oh, I think you're on your way, mm-hmm. particularly with this amazing new project you've been working on, which I, I want to talk about in a minute here. First, though, I got to start with this audience question, which I feel like is not even really fair to ask you, Hanif, because like your love of music seems to be so wide ranging mm-hmm. <laughs> that to ask you to pick like a personal theme song, it's, it seems reductive. But if you could humor us, what would you say your personal theme song is? So I got, yeah, I thought about this very briefly, and I just picked the song that got me through my the last bit of my workout today, which was uh, <laughs> Crown like, by Chica. Um, okay. And Crown is this really great, I mean, Chica's very gifted, and her album is one of my favorites of the year. Um, but Crown is, is um, you know, I have a, 
I won't go too deep into my workout mix, but I have this kind of like poorly organized workout mix that is over a decade old and it has no structure to it except for like when I when I think of a song, I just add it to the list and then I shuffle it. And so the problem with that is that there's like, um, you know, songs that don't really fit from like eras of my life 12 years ago. And so sometimes, you know, like a ballad by Coldplay will just come on. And it's like, well, I don't right. want to hear that now, but I, I did want to hear that in 2009. Um, yeah. But in the, at the, when I'm struggling to kind of like finish out the run or whatever, I, I have a go-to uh-huh. like mini playlist inside that playlist. And uh, Chica's Crown is at the top of it now. Let's take a listen to this, actually. I scribble the stanza as my hands are trembling. Great seven made heaven out of words. I began to build a world that only I inhabit. I got a habit of rapping about tragic shit. I think I'm just passionate. Trying to steer the way while in the dark. Hope I ain't crashing it. Now my little hobby turned to cash. Now thinking about who I That is like exactly the song you need when there is three minutes left in the workout <laughs> and you're fading. Like that will put some wind in your sails. That's a hill climber. And it's a yeah. great, uh, Chica has a great, um, why am I blanking? NPR Tiny Desk. I was like, why am I blanking on this very yeah. popular concert <laughs> series? Is she 19, like she says in the lyrics of that song? I think she's now 20. Oh, amazing. Let's take a quick break here, um, but we're going to be right back uh, with Hanif Abdur-Rakib. This is Livewire from PRX. Stay with us. We will be right back. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke, I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners... Uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including... Uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, And, Elena, uh, one more thing, that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to livewireradio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my. There's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. 
It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. ZBiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make ZBiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. ZBiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to ZBiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello, and we are talking to writer and cultural critic Hanif Abdurraqib. His latest project is a website of curated playlists and essays. It's called 68205. Hanif, how, how did the origin of this website get going for you? Yeah, it gets it's weird because I think it gets harder to explain the more I try. <laughs> but I was in Iowa this winter until I wasn't. Um, but I was teaching at Iowa. Uh, and, you know, as much as I loved being there, I didn't have a lot to do. You know, I taught mm-hmm. two classes a week, um, and they were like a workshop and a reading seminar. So it's not like I was taking home a ton of homework, you know, it was like, I was just kind of there. And yeah. I started making these charts. I started thinking about the origins of my own personal music fandom. And in doing so, I started making these charts around like, what is the first song that was introduced to me that I was excited about, that I can remember being excited about? And what songs inspired that song? Like, how far back can I trace the music that was introduced into my household, into my my sonic landscapes, into my early excitements about song? Um, and how far can I trace those back and forward? So, for example, how can I get from, like, Van Morrison to Elvis Costello to Bruce Springsteen to Fall Out Boy? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, I kind of made up this chart of my own personal musical fandom beginning in 1968 and ending in 2005. And not, of course, ending in the sense that I have not discovered new music, <laughs> but ending yeah. in that I, I think I fully formed my identity as a person who loves music in between the music made in those years and everything that came before and after kind of um, braided into that. But those were the years that I think the most active music things happened for me. And I made all these charts and I started making playlists. I made like a 1968 playlist um, and I put it on the internet just kind of casually. And people were like, I love it. I told people like, you know, I've kind of been messing around and I'm going to try to make all these playlists in between these years. And people were like, I love it. And after I made two or three playlists, um, I started thinking, well, I wonder if this could be something more than just my own kind of self-indulgent making a playlist. Um, and then, of course, <laughs> the, the pandemic happened. And in March, I had to go home. You know, in March, it was like, Iowa was like, it's a wrap for, for school. So, you know, <laughs> leave. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, in that time, I was kind of like, okay, even if I were to make a website, just, which for one, I can't make websites. You know, people are like, well, it took you so long to, to get that off the ground. I was like, yeah, because I was making a website for three months. You know, like I can't make, I don't know what I'm doing. So did you actually do the like web building of this thing? I it's did. A very, it's visually a really nice yeah. website as well. Like the layout is really smart. Thank you so much. That is very, <laughs> I appreciate that because I don't know what I'm, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I knew that if I made a website that was just playlists, it wouldn't be that interesting. You know, like I didn't want to make a thing that people could just come to and look for playlists. I wanted to kind of make a site that people could return to. And um, so I wanted to add 
visual elements and I wanted to add these live performance archive things like because I love I mean there's nothing I love more than just like scouring YouTube for mm. for videos of old performances you know like there's something really joyful for me about searching for a performance for a long time because YouTube is so fluid right and so mm -hmm. for example I was searching for this Sly and the Family Stone performance at the Black Woodstock Festival in Harlem um, and I'd been searching for it for years. And then one day it was just there, you know, because someone was huh. like, oh, I have this, I'm going to put it online. The other side of that spectrum is it's heartbreaking when someone's like, I'm going to take this offline. You know, like Springsteen's mm -hmm. Hammersmith Odeon stuff was on YouTube for years, and now mm -hmm. it's just not there anymore, and that's heartbreaking. But oh. I wanted to add that to the site, and then I got to a point where I was kind of thinking through what would bring me a lot of joy is if I kind of bought back this blog era of writing where one, the spaces for people to write about music they're excited about are shrinking online right now and have been for a while. Mm. And two, if I had the resources to, to pay people a little bit of money and say, just write, tell, you know, I've been hitting up writers and giving them years, you know, I'll hit up a writer and say, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of money if you think about an album between the years of 1984 and 1989 that changed your life and then write like a thousand words on it. And, and mm -hmm. trying, like, you know, whittling it down to that simple idea of just tell me an album that you love and tell me about it. Like, that's mm -hmm. the kind of stuff I want to read and that I don't get a lot of chances yeah. to read anymore. And so to provide that space um, for me also meant that I was providing a, a website that people would return to and not just kind of burn out on. Mm -hmm. I spent like five hours this week on 1968. Like oh, that yeah. is where I'm. I'm just like because I'm kind of chronological that way. Mm -hmm. But it's like there's it's so rich. There's like so much stuff there. By the way, we're talking to Hanif Abdul Rakib, the writer, about this website 68 to 05 uh, that he's launched. One of the things that I was struck by looking at the website, but also just in having read your books and, and interviewed you a couple of times, Hanif, is I really feel like you might have the widest appreciation of music of kind of like anybody that I know in terms of just the range of mm -hmm. styles of music and stuff you like. Is that a muscle that you had to develop or is that just did that just come naturally to you from from being a kid or whatever? Yeah, I think another part of this project was kind of thinking through how that happened, how I got that muscle and that that width of of music knowledge and joy. Um, but I think it's in part because I came to music fandom at a really interesting time. You know, my parents came up in the 60s and 70s and they were music lovers with two very different musical tastes. Mm. But I also had older siblings, like much older siblings. Um, you know, like I have siblings who are like a decade older than me in the early 90s where I think mm. a lot of people, um, and I grew up in a mostly black neighborhood, you know, and I think a lot of like black teens in the 90s were just like down to experiment with whatever was coming down the, the mm -hmm. musical pipe, you know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. So yes, of course, hip-hop, sure, but, you know, my, my oldest brother really loved metal, and my oldest sister loved, like, Riot Girl and, and singer-songwriters, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, there was still elements of folk and jazz and funk being played in the house, and so it was kind of just this thing um, where I was developing my music tastes based off of what was being funneled into the house because for a long time I didn't have any say over what got played where and when, what got played in the car or what got played in the kitchen or what got played in the living room. I didn't have any control over it. When you hit a point where it's like, I don't have any say on what is getting listened to, then I think you kind of, at least in my case, I just learned to embrace it and kind of start to think through what I loved about what was being played.
I just have to clarify too, like when we're talking about playlists, we're not talking about like 10 songs from each year. I listened to 1975. I started this morning at like 7 a.m. and I haven't made it all the way through yet. Um, so I, I'm wondering when you're dealing with that volume of a playlist, are you still thinking about curation? Like, you know, how 77 starts with like Fela Kuti and then goes to like suicide and then like Natalie Cole or something. Yeah, I mean, the playlists take a lot of work because I'm connecting songs throughout. So the first song on 75 is in some way going to connect to the first song that's on 85, right? And there's threads connecting them all the way through. So the playlists take um, a lot of work, more work than like, (laughs) a lot of good work, though, happy work. Yeah. You're hosting this uh, podcast for KCRW called Lost Notes. Uh, You're focusing on 1980 as a year. What have you been discovering about that year of music in your capacity as host of this show? Well, it's funny because Lost Notes, you know, they're so broad. They kind of hit me up and they're like, do you want to host the new season of Lost Notes? Uh, And I said, sure. And they were like, well, it could be about anything you want. (laughs) You know, like anything you want, you do it. And I thought, well, that's overwhelming. But then I I remembered, um, you know, we're hitting the 40th anniversary of the year 1980, which is not that special to most people. But I... There's something about what happened as that decade turned for musicians. Mm-hmm. I mostly just wanted to write about Grace Jones, you know? Like, I wanted <laughs> to write about Grace Jones kind of going to Compass Point Studios and kind of remaking her sound after uh, Disco Demolition Night happened. Then it was like, okay, well, I got Grace Jones. I got to think of, like, six other stories to write. And um, in another peg I had was, was Darby Crash. I wanted to write about Darby Crash, who, um, whose death was essentially consumed because he died the night before John Lennon died. And so I was so fascinated by Darby Crash who, you know, committed suicide and was on this real search of infamy. And that search was upended by John Lennon's murder um, the next night, you know, not even 24 hours. And so, um, but beyond that, there's a a story about Stevie Wonder making Hotter Than July. Um, Minnie Ripperton had this posthumous album that came out in 1980 called Love Lives Forever that I think most people don't remember. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was kind of this ill-fated, sentimental attempt at kind of cashing in on the way that posthumous albums can cash in, but it's really jumbled and awkward. Mm. And so I wanted to to write about that. And there's a piece about the first Sugar Hill Gang record. And um, there's a story about Hugh Masekela and Miriam Makeba going to Lesotho and performing in 1980 at the end of the year um, in the kind of encased by the apartheid regime. So it's Mm. kind of these things that I'm always interested in, wherein it's not just about the music, but about how music was impacting, you know, what were the cultural conditions that, that, allowed for that type of music to be made and pursued. And 1980 was a, such an interesting point for that. Um, mm-hmm. And there's also, yeah, there's also a piece about um, uh, Ian Curtis and the death of Ian Curtis kind of leading to, to New Order. Well, yeah. Um, do you feel like music has taken on any new significance or importance in, in your life or our lives during the pandemic? I I guess I can only speak for my life. Unfortunately, I think it's about the same. You know, I <laughs> yeah, it was always a lot and it remains a lot. I've missed talking to people about music and so I found new ways to do that, I think. Like every now and then, if I'm not too overwhelmed or just exhausted by the day, I'll like use that little Instagram question feature in the stories to ask people to tell me like what their favorite first track on an album is or what because I just really like hearing from people about what you know, part of six eight oh five too is like just genuinely like hearing from people on the things mm-hmm. that excite them. Hanif Abdul-Rakib, thank you so much for taking the time today, man. Thanks. It's so good to see y'all again. That was Hanif Abdul-Rakib right here on Livewire. 
Uh, you can get, he has so many amazing books, but um, let's just pick one at random. How about A Little Devil in America, Notes in Praise of Black Performance, uh, which is definitely worth reading. Also, you can check out his website, 68205.com. That is the word T-O, like 68205.com. And you can also catch the last season of Lost Notes, uh, which is the podcast he did where he does a deep dive on music of the 1980s. Hey, special thanks this week to Elon Hassan of Portland, Oregon, and Ann and John Wendland, also of Portland. Elon, Ann, and John are part of the Livewire listener community, and they are vital to this show happening because they are giving us a generous donation each month, and we are so appreciative for that support because it's how we are able to do the show. So a big huzzah this week to Elon, Ann, and John for making Livewire happen. This is the Livewire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. All right, like we do every week, we have asked the Livewire listeners a question. The question was, what is your personal theme song and why? Elena, you've been collecting those responses up. I have some theories on what some of the popular answers probably were for this. Mm -hmm. Like, feeling like I I will survive was near the top of the list. Where did that one rank? Um, So... Uh, we did have multiple responses for one song. One song okay. was listed by, I think, three people. But it was not the, not the Gloria Gaynor song, I Will Survive. No, that is oh. one strike, Mr. Burbank. Could, do you care to wager a second guess? No, I'm doing terribly <laughs> at this. Why don't you just tell me? What was the most popular song? It's the Simon and Garfunkel song, I Am a Rock. <laughs> okay, okay. I feel like that's in the same vein. It's kind of just like reminding yourself you're going to be okay or that you have the strength to get through, basically. I don't know. I think it says something about our listeners, you know, because I Have a Rock <laughs> is kind of like, I can yeah. do this all by myself, you know. So Lynn says, um, I've had difficulties maintaining friendships or even thinking about relationships sometimes. So I guess the song sort of hits home there. I Am a Rock, I Am an Island. Yeah, and then Brian says, my theme song in between the occasional girlfriend because of the lyrics, if I never <laughs> loved, I never would have cried. Wow. <laughs> Very Disrespectful. Kind of deep. All right. Uh, any uh, less <laughs> sad answers from the Livewire audience? See, here's someone that I thought was going to be in a lot, but only mentioned once by Danielle. Lizzo's worship is my entrance music. If I ever need one, the aspirational level of confidence I want to bring into my world. I feel like anytime Lizzo gets poured into the yeah. mix, you just grow about two inches. You know? I started following Lizzo on TikTok, and I have to tell you, it is improved my life experience by like 80% every week. What does she do on the TikTok? She does a lot of duets. So someone will like put something, They'll somebody will do something cute related to Lizzo or her music. And then she will, it'll just be Lizzo watching the video split screened of someone else talking about how much they love her music. And the genuine like excitement and enthusiasm on Lizzo's face is a Ooh. whole mood. Oh. Yeah. If you want, if you want to stop feeling like you have to be a rock or an island, I would say follow Lizzo on TikTok. It's a very, <laughs> it's a very warm uh, sort of uh, vibe going on. All right, one more before we uh, move on. Okay, uh, here's one from J&J Today. Okay. The theme song is Annie Lennox's Little Bird. Do you know that song? I don't think I do. I look up to a little bird. 
right. Well, she explains, uh, J&J Today explains that <laughs> it's all about the courage of leaving the nest and learning to fly. Like, it's got lines like, I've just got to put these wings to the test. This little mm-hmm. bird's coming out of that nest. So I got the feeling that I might have been blessed. So it's a real, like shoot up into the stratosphere kind of a song. Wait, did you just know those lyrics off the top of your head? I love that song. I love wow. Annie Lennox. And, uh, I, I think, honestly, Elena, it's like you, between you and Hanif, I uh, would say <laughs> the two of you have the widest range of musical interests. Like when we're doing the show in Portland, like in the normal times, any song our house band starts playing, uh, <laughs> you will like be right there with it and you'll no. often have an interesting like anecdote about what happened in the recording of that song. Uh, I'm not just talking about Muskrat Love, which is your that's true. real house. That would be my theme song if any of the lyrics <laughs> applied, which none of them do. <laughs> <laughs> this is Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Um, Of course, we are still recording these shows from our homes. And I feel like our homes and our houses have been very top of mind for all of us during the pandemic because we've just been spending all of our time here. Um, And uh, this is very relevant to our next guest because she bought a house near Chicago a few years back. And and when she did that, she started to realize a bunch of things uh, about herself and also kind of about her life. Like she was really thinking about her life differently now that she was a person who owned a home than when she had been renting. Um, She also started thinking about what it means to be middle class in this country and how whiteness actually affects that and everything. Uh, And also, she learned that you should not leave Ikea furniture out in the rain, (laughs) uh, which is just a pro tip. Uh, The book is called Having and Being Had. Let's welcome Eula Biss to Livewire. Thanks so much, happy to be here. Uh, Are we reaching you in the actual house? That is kind of the jumping off point for this book. Yes, the house that's real and also symbolic, yeah. <laughs> um, what were your rules for writing this book? I know you had some yeah. some plans going in. Well, actually, the rules emerged from the work at first. So very early on, I, I was just writing... Um, I did wasn't thinking of it as a book. I was writing little kind of diary entries. There were moments of discomfort from my life that I didn't quite understand, psychological discomfort, but usually they were lodged within material comfort. And, and that's what I was trying to make sense of, this like discomfort with comfort. Um, mm-hmm. So I was, I was saving those moments um, and just jotting down kind of notes, diary entries, Um, But those began to, as I worked them over, they began to take shape into this series of titled pieces. And after I'd written a handful of them, that became a rule that every single one of these pieces had to begin in the present tense and had to be, had to involve an exchange with another person of some sort. Um, But the rule that was hardest um, emerged because it was something I didn't want to do. Um, And I I saw myself avoid something in the text. Um, There's a moment in the book where I'm talking to my sister on the phone. I've called her to tell her that I think that what I actually did was buy a $400,000 container for a washing machine. Um, (laughs) Right. (laughs) And... As I was writing that moment down, recording it, I noted that to myself that I hadn't been honest with my sister, that my house cost four eighty five, so it was closer to a $500,000 mm-hmm. container for a washing machine. And, mm-hmm, yeah. um, and I asked myself, you know, why did I do that? Why would I lie to my own sister about the price of my house? And mm-hmm. it, it bothered me. It disturbed me. So I made a rule from then on, every time I mentioned a sum of money, I had to use the actual dollar amount. 
and that mm-hmm. was to avoid what I'd done there. I, I rounded down dramatically. And so yeah. um, I wanted mm-hmm. to um, to take that option off the table for myself. No more rounding down is, is what I said. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you write your actual salary. Yeah. You've written about a lot of really personal things. Was writing your salary like <laughs> the most personal thing you've written? <laughs> Writing the actual numbers involved in my life, my salary, what my father paid for me to go to college, um, mm-hmm. that was that was among the hardest, most excruciatingly personal feeling material that I've ever put on the page, which was strange to me because I wouldn't think of those things as incredibly personal or more personal than, say, you know, I've written about my own body, I've written about... Uh, a gory scene of giving birth to my child. I've um, I've written about my race, my racial identity, about being white. Uh, things that I would think would be harder than writing about the dollar sums in my life, but mm-hmm. it felt strangely um, exposing. It made me think of this this thing that came out on the social media over the past couple months where all of these writers, not often not nonfiction writers who do what you do, Eula, but like mm-hmm. fiction writers and things where they start revealing how much money they got paid for their books. Yeah. And the scope from one book to the other was so yes. alarming. And I wonder if maybe one of the reasons that we're so hesitant to talk about those things is because they're so underregulated, mm-hmm. you know, because nobody's talking about them. Yeah, yeah. My student sent me that that thread. That was the publishing paid me thread, yeah. right? And I thought it was so fascinating. Um, and yeah, the numbers are wildly all over the place. Um, and that's been my experience as a writer too, you know, writing a book for which I get paid a thousand dollars and, you know, mm-hmm. and then um, this latest book, you know, it's, it's more closer to like $350,000. So it's like a really wide range. Mm -hmm. Um, I know this about my workplace too, you know, where at Mm -hmm. the university, the people doing essentially the same work are paid dramatically different Mm -hmm. salaries, you know, not just like a little bit more, like $5,000 more, but like, Mm -hmm. um, triple and quadruple what other people are being paid. By the way, this is Livewire Radio. We're talking to Eula Biss about her latest book, Having and Being Had, um, about buying a home, but then also about everything that comes with that and and finding out where you really fall on the spectrum of, of class and income. I mean, famously in this country, right, everybody considers themselves mm-hmm. to be middle class. Mm-hmm. But like for you, that was something that you really had to come to terms with, essentially? I had to come to terms with it. I also had to just learn what it meant. Right. Because so many people consider themselves middle class in this country, it's it can be hard to determine what that category really is. And mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. Um, so I had to do some research into how do we define the middle class? What do we mean when we say middle class? Just to be able to ask myself the question, am I middle class? Um, mm-hmm. Though I was kind of working from the assumption that I was middle class now in my life and that I'd started out as middle class Um I, I went through a process of kind of refining that. Okay, what does it mean, first of all, and where in the middle class am I? And um, and there were a number of things that surprised me that kind of just brought me to awareness of my own kind of economic ignorance. And one was the the median income in the U.S. So the um, the true kind of middle is around... I'm not sure exactly what it is now, but it's around fifty or sixty thousand dollars. So that's mm, um, right. that's the middle. And so um, 
I realized that many of the people around me, including myself, who considered themselves middle class, were well above the median income nationally. Um, and then I started thinking in other terms. As I dug deeper into how do we calculate the middle class, what is the middle class, I ran into this idea that um, net worth is a more maybe precise way to measure where someone is in terms of class because income doesn't take into account inherited wealth or debt mm, or right. cost of living, all these other things that can um, have a big effect on on your lived experience. Um, mm -hmm. So net worth is you subtract your, your debts from your assets and what's left over is your net worth. And so the poorest people in this country have a negative net worth and are, right. are in debt. Um, and the middle class, according to one scholar, the middle class measured by net worth ranges from a net worth of zero to a net worth of around $400,000. So wow. <laughs> just yeah, a little, a little variation range, you know, and <laughs> I've actually in my adult life, I've been on both ends of that range in terms of net worth. So I'm now on the upper end of that range. Um, but for most of my early adulthood, when I was writing my first and second book, I was on the other end. I was near the zero mm -hmm. net worth. Uh, you write that this book is also, it's not just about home ownership and what that meant for you and what that means for all of you. You write this book is about whiteness. Mm -hmm. how, how exactly? Mm, I think I didn't feel like I could write about ownership um, or my place in the economic system with all, without also um, thinking through the history of um, white ownership of mm -hmm black bodies and black labor in this country and the way that white wealth has been built um, on, on specifically on black labor and black lives. And so it, it did seem to me I intrinsically interrelated and in intertwined. And so there's, there's moments in the book where that uh, meditation bubbles up to the surface, the thinking about, mm -hmm. um, about ownership and thinking about mm -hmm. what it means to be a, a white American who's investing in property as a way of building wealth um, mm -hmm. and what it means to do that within a system where uh, there are still all kinds of barriers th that prevent African Americans from building wealth through ownership mm -hmm. and through property ownership specifically. Um, so... Yeah, that, that's part of what I was thinking about. But I was also, you know, in the notes section at the end of the book, I, I say that I my investigation of uh, capitalism is inspired in part by the whiteness of the whale. And right. I think um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in our particular kind of capitalism, our contemporary American capitalism, um, it feels to me like a system that has been rigged in a number of different ways to sure. benefit white people in ways that it often does not benefit non-white people. And so mm. it, it, I felt like I needed to to look closely at that and think about it rather than, I think the easier story that people like to tell themselves when they um, come into money, which is what happened to me. I came into money, but I came into money by, you know, getting a raise at my job and having a book that did fairly well and things like that. Um, but I think the story people prefer to tell themselves is, well, I worked really hard. And, right. um, and that can be true too. I think both things can be true, right? Like right. I worked hard, but I also was helped out in many, many tiny invisible ways by a system mm -hmm. that's built to help people mm -hmm. like me. 
Um, one last question. Uh, this book is sort of about your home, and I assume you're spending a lot more time <laughs> yes. at home now, as we all are. Um, has any of that changed? Has that experience of the last however many months changed any of your thoughts about your home? Or, mm. or like if you're writing this book now, would you be writing it in the same way? Mm. Hmm, that's a great question. I, I, I certainly wouldn't. If I were writing this book now, I wouldn't be writing it in the same way, in part because... Um, I think many of the observations I was making while I was writing this book were based on things that were much subtler before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And, the you know, people keep using this phrase, the pandemic has laid bare our inequalities. Mm -hmm. And and it has. It's And in ways that I think the work of writing this book would look very different and, and the texture of the book itself would be very different in a moment where those those inequalities are not as secreted away and not mm-hmm. as hidden in daily middle class life the way they they were pre pandemic um mm-hmm. now it's you know abundantly obvious that our comfortable lives depend on the labor of insecure workers who were mm-hmm. simultaneously calling essential and not providing health insurance to. Right. Um, so, but, but in terms of the home itself, you know, part of why I wanted to write this book was when we first moved into this house, it felt so excessive and I felt just so, um, I felt so abundantly rich. Mm-hmm. And I think it's probably important to mention that this would be considered where I live a, a very modest middle-class home. It's a two-bedroom house. Um, but to me, it just felt like an enormous amount of space and and so excessive. And But I was aware that I was going to get used to this place and that it would seem mm-hmm. ordinary very quickly. And mm-hmm. I will say, like all that said, you know, now that we're all working from home and doing school from home and teaching from home, it, it doesn't feel that big anymore, I have to say. It's- <laughs> Do you ever catch yourself in your weaker moments just looking at Redfin? Just thinking if we could just have a dedicated office space. <laughs> Definitely not, but I was joking today that um, that the whole house has become an office space. Yes. And there's piles of books in every room. There's even a laundry basket full of books, you know, because just to make them more portable and you know if people are eating then I move all the books that I put on the dining table to some other spot. <laughs> uh, Eula it's a great book it's having and being had by Eula Biss. Uh, Eula thank you so much for coming on the Live Warehouse Party. Oh thank you it's totally totally my pleasure. That was Eula Biss. You are listening to Live Wire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank. We got to take a short break but don't go anywhere because we will be right back. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Hey, our musical guest is the second guest on the show this week who hails from near Columbus, Ohio. Uh, she's toured the country with just about everybody from Jason Isbell to Lucinda Williams. Rolling Stone calls her music part cowpunk, part 80s pop. Her album Daughter is out right now. 
Let's welcome Lydia Loveless to Livewire. Woohoo! Hi. Uh, where are you uh, joining us from today? Uh, I'm in my studio room in uh, North Carolina. Oh, cool. I, I'd read somewhere that uh, maybe it was Twitter where you said you felt like during the pandemic, this has been maybe one of your most creative periods oh, of your God, life. No. <laughs> was that sarcasm? <laughs> Um, I don't know if I would say creative, but it's it's been um, meditative and thoughtful yeah. for sure. I think it just hasn't really occurred to me to even like start working on songs right now just because of mm. focusing so much on getting the, the record out because the record comes with hand-typed lyrics from my typewriter. So uh. that's been taking up like wow. all of my time <laughs> Wait a second. Right <laughs> so your new album is titled Daughter, and if somebody buys it, you will hand type the lyrics? Yeah. Well, only one sheet. Uh, you okay. only get one random song, luckily. Um, okay. But I, I think I just expected, you know, there to be a few pre-orders. And now I'm like way over my head. But it's been sort of a positive experience that I underestimated myself. I was wrong. <laughs> so so you have, you've, you've had more albums pre-ordered than you expected, which means you're going to have to type yes. up more lyrics then. Uh, yeah, I'll have carpal tunnel by the end of everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, one other thing I was reading on your website when you were talking about the the writing and the, the recording of this new record is, and I think I read it right, you said that you felt really insecure about the songs at first? Yeah, because I feel like when I moved away, I obviously didn't like bring my band with me. They have families and lives, but I was like, I'm so used to like bouncing songs off of them like in the rehearsal room as opposed to sending them, you know, demos that I made with a drum machine and like my crappy recording skills. So I was just like, is any of this going to really turn out the way I want it to? Like it really kind of turned out for the best because I had such like well thought out demos that I had made mm. that everyone could just kind of easily pick up what they needed to do. So it ended up working out as opposed to me being in a room like, and then you go, dun, 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 you know, like, <laughs> trying to explain to someone what you want them to do. Does that really happen? Like as a professional musician, do yeah. you ever have to just make mouth sounds to try yeah, to let? Everyone does it. Yeah. Like, really? We'll just be in the room like, and then you go, see, I thought that's what was standing between me and becoming a professional musician is that that would have been my approach, but I am actually really encouraged to hear that's a thing. I feel like other people, People have to do it. Like it can't be just me being like not oh, that yeah. intelligent. Yeah. <laughs> <But> <laughs> well, what song are you going to play for us today? Um, I'm going to do a song called "Say My Name," and it's basically about being so romantically involved with someone. I suppose that you forget uh, to check in on yourself, mm. <laughs> and you end up feeling like a shell of a man. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I think that's probably an experience a lot of people hearing this right now can can relate to, including yes. the host of this show. Um, oh. All right. This is Lydia Loveless here on the Livewire House Party.
Lydia Loveless off the album Daughter. Lydia, thank you so much. That was beautiful. Thank you. That was Lydia Loveless right here on Livewire. Her new album, Daughter, is out now. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. Uh, we're going to be talking to comedian and New York Times contributor Sopan Deb about uh, his book. It's a memoir. It's called Mistranslations, Meeting the Immigrant Parents Who Raised Me. Uh, then Lulu Miller is going to stop by. She is a writer and, of course, the co-host of Radio Lab. She has put out a fascinating book called Why Fish Don't Exist. If you read one book about a controversial taxonomist from the turn of the century, it should be this one. And then we're going to hear some music from Morea Massa, music that was inspired by her mother's struggles uh, with mental illness. It's going to be a really fun, interesting, powerful show next week. So you do not want to miss it. That's going to do it for this week's show. A big thanks to our guests, Hanif Abdurraqib, Yula Biss, and Lydia Loveless. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Jennifer Vo is our social media manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Elon Hassan and Anne and John Wendland of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. <laughs>